And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me in the studio today is Dr. Hans Vogt, Professor, Ulster County Community College. Thanks for having me, Dan. Well, you know, uh, Hans, today is the day right before what we call D-Day. And uh, thought maybe what we would do today is talk a little bit about that very important point in our nation's history and our world's history, D-Day. Um, when did that occur exactly? D-Day was June 6, 1944, and that marked uh, the start of Operation Overlord, which was the allied, uh, that is the British, Canadian, American invasion of France and the opening up of a second front in World War II in Europe. Yeah, and um, some of us have this more freshly on our mind, perhaps, because we've seen uh, that movie called Saving Private Ryan. And uh, right away, I want to say, you know, that's only part of World War II. That's not the whole part, is it, that movie, even though it's an interesting uh, picture. It's a huge conflict. It's truly a world war being fought around the globe. Yeah. You have a almost a separate war in the Pacific going on with Japan, uh, as well as the war in Europe. So. Well, that's what amazed me. You know, I'd heard these other names, like Iwo Jima and Okinawa, but uh, you have, actually, before our session here today, you sent me one of the packages you use as you teach uh, World War II to your students, and um, really, these are two huge, just huge battlefronts, both the war in Europe and the, and the war in the Pacific, aren't they? Yes. Now, uh, Looking at World War II, and I've got so much to learn, I just feel so ignorant. First of all, we want to say that um, we honor our veterans, many of whom are have passed on already, but there's still some remaining from World War II. But all the veterans uh, that have fought uh, for this great nation and for the cause of freedom, uh, we honor you today. But uh, let's take a look a little bit at World War II. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do, Hans, was was look a little bit at uh, the person of Adolf Hitler, and perhaps we could get inside of his mind just a little bit, if there's evidence anyway, objective evidence that has been written. Uh, what was going on with this guy? Uh, why would he do the things that he did? Right. Well, I think the, the context to understand this uh, is the reaction to what had taken place with the First World War, uh, where many people in Europe and, and in America as well saw this sort of as a failure of liberalism, uh, that is traditional or classic liberalism, uh, in the sense of individual freedom, individual rights. Uh, and there were many saying, you know, that weakens a nation. Uh, and if if all World War One, you know, if all that liberalism had led to was this massive carnage of World War One, then perhaps it wasn't so good after all. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, in the in the classic um, novel published uh, about the war after the war, All Quiet on the Western Front, mm-hmm. uh, the, the novelist um, who was himself a World War One veteran, uh, Eric Maria Remarque writes, it must all be lies and of no account if the culture of a thousand years could not prevent this bloodshed. Hmm. Uh, hmm. And really what you see with fascism then and, and, and Nazism in Germany is this post-war disillusionment. Uh, right. 
and the search for something stronger. And it, really, it's a radical nationalism uh, based uh-huh. on racism, the idea that somehow group identity, racial identity, that that is where a nation would find its source of strength. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is contrasted to what the Christian would have as identity believers in Jesus Christ, independent of their race. And that's that's the ultimate identity. But going back to, to Hitler, going back to the mindset of the people, someplace in my reading there was this treaty that had kind of embittered Mm-hmm. Uh, the German people. Could you tell us about the Treaty of, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> treaty of Versailles. Versailles. Yeah, uh, simple it's enough. the big treaty after World War I, right? Yeah. And uh, there was resentment in Germany about the treaty terms. Germans believed they were too harsh. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, they were upset about the war guilt clause, which um, basically assigned the sole blame for World War I on Germany and Austria, mm-hmm. um, which was not quite true. Uh, and also, uh, they were very upset about uh, the reparations, which they were forced to pay, um, which basically ruined the German economy and, through that, ruined the world economy. It's one of the main factors in the worldwide Great Depression of the 1930s. Okay, yeah. Um, and, and so, and, and there were, you know, so there was that resentment. Now, those reparations, had they continued to have paid them, I saw some writing someplace that said, that would have continued through some some date not that long ago. Right. Like 1988 or something, uh, to get them all paid off. So it must have been horribly depressing to the German people to, to have that hanging over their heads. Right. Yeah. And the point had been all along to crush Germany economically. So mm-hmm. in that sense, sure. the reparations did what they were designed to sure. do. What no, what I shouldn't say nobody realized, actually, uh, the British economist John Maynard Keynes warned people at the time this would happen, mm-hmm. is that if you drag Germany down economically, you drag, drag the rest of the world down with it. Right. That's what happened. Right. But Hitler comes along. Um, he had grown up as a young man in Austria, okay. born in 1889, uh, was an aspiring artist. Um, he painted uh, postcards in the streets of Vienna and twice applied to the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts and mm. twice was rejected. Uh-huh. And it's mm-hmm. fascinating to think about how 20th century history would have been different if Hitler had simply been a little bit better painter than he was. Interesting. Yeah. And also, I don't want to overstate this, but people that are in the arts often have more feeling, more emotion than, than some of us who maybe are more engineer type. And I wonder how that may have played into uh, Hitler's whole psyche. <laughs> well, it did. Also, he was not a very good student. He didn't do well in school. Hmm. Um, and then as, a, as a, an adult, he did a lot of reading on his own, but it was very selective reading. And unfortunately, he read a lot of uh, the eugenics authors, um, just some really virulent racists, people like Houston Stewart Chamberlain mm-hmm. and um, Francis Galton and people like that. And that's really where he got his ideas of racial superiority and and eugenics, which formed the backbone of what the Nazis wound up doing. So this is objective stuff, because I did come across that little tidbit, how that uh, some of the books of Houston Stewart Chamberlain were actually found in Hitler's private library. And so it was this Chamberlain who was inspired, uh, in turn, by the eugenics theories of Sir Francis Galton. Correct. No, that's true. Uh, Chamberlain was an Englishman uh, who moved to Germany. He 
um, divorced his wife and married uh, Eva Wagner, the uh, uh, daughter of the great uh, composer, Richard mm-hmm. Wagner, mm-hmm. and um, was actually an advisor to Kaiser Wilhelm II in the First World War. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yes, an influence on the Nazis and, and Hitler. Yeah. So uh, I guess what this was pointing out was that uh, Galton, being the cousin of uh, Charles Darwin, uh, his ideas owed a lot to social Darwinism. So you can kind of see the connections here between this evolutionary theology, can I call it theology, <laughs> theory, um, and uh, how this really played out in a person's life. Right, and what you see as soon as the Nazis come to power in the 30s is that they begin passing laws to try to, uh, A, encourage the superior Aryans to have more children, yeah. Uh, and to prevent uh, the inferior peoples, as they saw it, from having children. Mm-hmm. Um, Jews and other minorities were encouraged to have abortions. Uh, they tried to eliminate all physically and mentally uh, disabled people mm-hmm. um, who were simply called mouths. In other words, they were just eating. They were using up resources that could be better oh, spent okay. on, on people who could contribute yeah. to society in their view. Um, and and ultimately, of course, what this would lead to is the final solution in the Holocaust. Yeah. Well, I see that we need to take a short break. Today we're talking about D-Day. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me in the studio, Dr. Hans Vogt, Professor, Ulster County Community College. Stay with us now. We'll be right back. We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program.
And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me in the studio today, Dr. Hans Vogt, Professor, Ulster County Community College. On our agenda is D-Day. Tomorrow is D-Day. And uh, we've been talking about some of the events and some of the philosophies leading up to World War II. Now, uh, we barely touched on uh, Hitler and some of the philosophies he held to, and uh, we briefly mentioned the eugenics philosophy that uh, he was buying into. Um, I'm wondering, as we look at this this man, this Hitler, um, must be the people on the ground in Germany uh, felt a desperation, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, and, and what, what was really happening there such that a Hitler could so thoroughly and quickly and completely come to power. Um, help me understand that. Sure. Well, after the uh, World War I ends, you have uh, a creation of a republic in Germany. It's known as the Weimar Republic. And it is just not a, a very successful government. Um, they're unable to solve the economic crisis, um, which we, we touched on briefly. You have runaway inflation, you have, by 1932, 40% of the German workforce is unemployed. That, that's a huge factor, isn't it? It yeah. is. I mean, yeah. by comparison, 1932, of course, that's the worst year of the Great Depression. By comparison, that year, 25% of the American workforce was unemployed. Okay. So the Great Depression right. was far worse in Germany than it was in America. That's interesting. And is it also true that ripple effects are felt worldwide? Uh, oh, it's a worldwide uh, Great Depression, absolutely. It is, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right. uh, but Germany is certainly one of the hardest-hit nations. Okay. Um, now, what happens is, right from pretty much the end of the war, the military leaders, including General Hindenburg, who was, by the early 30s, the president of Germany, hmm. had been claiming that they hadn't lost World War I. They pointed out that their armies were still on French and Belgian soil when the ceasefire was signed. Hmm. And uh, what Hitler does is to come along and pick up that argument mm-hmm. and add an anti-Semitic twist to it and okay. claim that it is it was a handful of Jews within the mm-hmm. civilian government that betrayed and, and stabbed the German military in the back. Isn't it interesting how that the human psyche allows us to do that? We always want to find a scapegoat. We want always want to say, it's his fault, and paint somebody as an enemy, and then that helps us, quote-unquote, helps us feel better about ourselves. Right. Yeah. And we should point out that the anti-Semitism in, in the early 20th century was based more on race, quote-unquote, than on religion. Okay. Um, that is, Jews were seen as a separate race mm-hmm. um, and an inferior race, which is not true, but, no. but that was the attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So Hitler um, was himself a World War I veteran. Uh, had won two iron crosses for heroic service. He mm. was a courier between the trenches, which was very hazardous duty. Um, and after his discharge, he joins a small German workers' party in Bavaria, in Munich, and builds it up into the National Socialist Party, or Nazi Party. All right, so he's starting to build himself support there. Right. Uh, he, he creates a paramilitary group known as the uh, SA, Sturmabdelung, or Stormtroopers in English. Mm-hmm. Um, now, does anybody approve of him doing that? I mean, any, any of the civil magistrate, as it were, or is he doing this secretly? 
semi-secretly, they mm-hmm. actually he actually attempts to take over the Bavarian state government in 1923. Mm-hmm. It's known as the Beer Hall Putsch because it begins mm-hmm. in a beer hall, mm-hmm. uh, and it fails. And he then spends a year in prison in 1924. And it's while he's in prison that he writes Mein Kampf, My Struggle. Okay, so so really he's he's getting his ducks lined up kind of early on here. It's not like it's a it's a last minute thought in the 1930s, late 1930s, early 40s, but here he, all the way back 1920, 25 or whatever. Yes, uh, Mein Kampf it outlines all his future plans. You know, mm. if you read it, it is all there: the anti-Semitism, the rejection of the Versailles Treaty. Uh, the need for Lebensraum, uh, that is living room, in other words, that we're going to expand and conquer mm. Europe. Um, I imagine historians have to read that whether they want to or not. Yes, it does yeah. not make for fun reading, no. but, um, but no. the point is, of course, very few people outside of Germany read it at the time, and yeah. anyone who did would have dismissed it as the ravings of a madman. Interesting. Which it was, but this particular madman was able to do what he wanted to do, it's unfortunately. It's shocking. Yeah, yes. it's shocking. So the Nazis, uh, by 1932, have 230 seats in the German parliament, the Reichstag. Um, and President Hindenburg, who remembers the former general from World War I, uh, and his fellow conservatives in Germany decide to make Hitler the chancellor, the prime minister. And they're hoping to use him as a puppet. Hmm. Um, and what they quickly find out, of course, is that he's not a puppet. So they think they're going to use him. In reality, of course, he uses them. Yep. yep. Um, so he becomes chancellor in January of 1933. Uh, on February 27th, there's a fire in the Reichstag, which Hitler accuses the communists of setting. Uh, it's not clear who set the fire, but but it's probably his own stormtroopers set the fire. Yeah, and I noticed that he hated the communists, didn't right. he? Yeah, right. I, I didn't realize that. And that's that part of what made him attractive to conservatives. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so huh. Hitler, in response to that incident, Hitler demanded and received emergency dictatorial powers. So he used a tragedy. Which he probably manufactured himself. Yeah. Yes. As the pretext for seizing power. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, so it, it's, it's done sort of outside of the normal electoral process. It has to be said, though, in August of 1934, they do hold a plebiscite in Germany and... Hitler received 85% approval from the German voters for becoming a dictator. Had they known at that time the atrocities that would follow, I doubt that he would have gotten that high of a following. Right. Yeah. But at the time, Germany is a desperate nation. Hitler presents himself as a messiah, Mm -hmm. as one who will rescue Germany as one who will restore the German economy, restore the German nation to greatness, mm-hmm. build an empire that will last a thousand years. For a desperate and defeated and dispirited nation, Hitler is offering mm-hmm. hope, he's offering a return to glory. Um, you know, that's the appeal. Now, yeah. he doesn't fully reveal all that he intends to do, of course. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, Boy, how many times in Scripture we see this recurring theme, don't put your hope in the strong arm of a man, hope right. in Jehovah God, but not man. That's right. And, some and, may trust in horses, some may one. trust right. in chariots, but we will trust in the Lord our Amen. God. Amen. Yeah. So here's Hitler. He's uh, seizing power. 1933, he becomes chancellor. He has these unusual philosophies 
rolling around in his head, including eugenics. Yes. And uh, before we open the mics, you had mentioned some other things that were extremely disturbing that he had gotten into. Maybe you could share those now. Sure. As a young man in Vienna, um, he had been introduced to the world of the occult. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a number of neo-pagan um, philosophies circulating in Europe and in the United States in the early 20th century, theosophism, um, neo-paganism, uh, interest in hypnotism and astrology, and Hitler bought into all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the top leaders of the Nazi party were very interested in the occult and the supernatural. Um, they did seek out um, relics such as the Holy Grail. I mean, I, I know mm. that's it's not just Indiana Jones. There's actually some reality to that. They didn't oh seek them out for their Christian value, you know, yeah. but rather because they believed they had mystical, magical yeah. power. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of Hitler's hmm. good friends, uh, Hermann Roschning, quotes Hitler as saying, you cannot be both a German and a Christian. Oh and my. in reference to scripture, Hitler said, whether it is the Old Testament or the New, it's all the same old Jewish swindle. So he just writes it off. Yes. Oh, that's awful. Okay, so that we better understand the mind of Hitler. Just a little, a few glimpses there, and that's helpful. So we've got these conditions on the ground in Germany that went along with Hitler so quickly and thoroughly coming to power. Um, When does finally, maybe I'm jumping the gun here, no pun intended, but when does World War II finally begin, quote-unquote? Well, what happens is that Hitler begins rebuilding the military, which is a violation of the Treaty of Versailles. Right. Uh, He moves into the... Rhineland, which is the Rhine River Valley, the border between Germany and France and Belgium, Mm -hmm. which he was not allowed to do by the Treaty of Versailles. He does that in 1936. And had Britain and France responded then forcefully, uh, they probably could have nipped everything in the bud. But the, the British and French leaders were also disillusioned by World War I. Sure. They had no desire to repeat that carnage yeah. and slaughter another generation of young men, yeah. so they chose the path of appeasement. So yeah. every time Hitler demanded another piece of territory, they gave it to him. And it was, yeah. you know, first it was Austria, uh, his own native land in March of 38. Then mm. in September of 38, it's the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. Uh, finally, in 1939, on September 1st, Germany invades Poland, and two days later, Britain and France declare war in Germany, and that's sort of the official oh. start of World War One. Okay, that's helpful. I see we're almost getting tight on time. We have maybe about uh, three more minutes to this uh, program here today. You're tuned to A Plain Answer, and tomorrow being D-Day, we thought it uh, good to talk about D-Day and some of the causes of World War Two. try to get inside the mind of Hitler as it's documented uh, objectively for us in history, understand this very evil man and understand the people on the ground there in Germany and what made it so that Hitler could so quickly and thoroughly come to power. Um, D-Day, just as uh, we try to wrap up some thoughts here, because we're running out of time, um, let's just jump ahead. Uh, You know, 
America's not in the war yet. And, you know, I'm starting to think maybe we need to cover a little bit more of this next week, because this is just a fascinating subject. It's huge. This war is being fought eventually on a couple of fronts, and they're huge fronts. Mm -hmm. But let's specifically now talk about D-Day, because tomorrow we celebrate uh, D-Day once again. And uh, what happens on this this important day? And, you know, I might want to say this. When my wife and I uh, got married, we got married on June the 6th. And at the time, we weren't into history and all of that. And someone told us, you're getting married on D-Day. <laughs> we didn't even realize that. So um, D-Day has a double significance for me but and for Debbie. But what, what now happens on D-Day? I know we're jumping ahead. But um, we are almost out of time. Well, basically, most of the war in Europe is being fought between Germany and Russia. Uh, And um, from really as early as as 1942, beginning of 1942, when the U.S. enters the war, Stalin, the leader of Russia, is begging the British and Americans to open up a second front in Europe and take some of the pressure off Russia. And it really takes two years for the Western allies to raise an army of, of, you know, three million plus men, train them, gather the equipment. I mean, the logistics of an amphibious invasion against an entrenched enemy are huge. Oh, yeah. And you have to remember that most of these were, were drafted men who have no military experience. It takes a while to train them and so forth. But finally, in June of 1944, they open up that second front in Europe, and begin to take some of the pressure off uh, the Russian army. Okay. And, and what I learned, uh, and I should have known this before, Russia's involvement was huge. Uh, you have, a, to your students here, you present this, you have one foil here that talks about the World War II deaths. Right. I was amazed. And uh, what was the number of Russian uh, USSR deaths? Roughly 25 million Russians died. It's unbelievable. In Russian history, it is known simply as the Great Patriotic War. Oh and my. they are justifiably proud of yeah. what they did and the sacrifices they made. Yeah. Between June of 41, when Germany invaded Russia, and June of 44, D-Day, 90% of all German battle casualties were inflicted by oh the my. Russians. Well, you know, now I'm convinced. we really got to pick this up next week. Uh, we want to thank our listeners so much for joining us today for another edition of A Plain Answer. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me in the studio today, Dr. Hans Vogt, Professor, Ulster County Community College. Tomorrow is D-Day, and uh, we want to encourage you to pray for this country of America. Pray for the world that the gospel will spread. I know we didn't mention it much during uh, the broadcast today, but... The ultimate hope for all of mankind is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and hearts that are changed by Christ to love him, to walk with him as we obey his word. Please join us again next week at this same time for another edition of A Plain Answer.